Welcome to the NM Cool podcast. I'm your host, Mary Charlotte Domandi. NM Cool is the New Mexico Coalition to Enhance Working Lands, and its fifth annual summit is happening in the spring of 2022. This is a time of uncertainty and profound change when so many of us are fatigued from multiple stresses, and so it's more important than ever to focus on effective collaboration and good working relationships. This series of six podcasts addresses some big topics facing people who are working with the land, and we hope it helps you stay on course and resilient. One of the many challenges facing farms here in the West is drought. Our guests today spend time helping farmers, ranchers, and other people involved with farming to plan for drought, which can be surprisingly helpful both practically and emotionally. Harrison Topp is membership director for the Rocky Mountain Farmers Union, and he's operator of Top Fruits in Paonia, Colorado. And Retta Bruger is regional specialist in rangeland management at Colorado State University Extension. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you very much. So you are helping farmers and ranchers put together plans for drought preparedness. Could you paint a picture for us of what the water situation is like right now in Colorado and in this part of the West for food producers? So I work on rangelands, which are by definition unirrigated lands that support perennial plants as well as livestock grazing. So the main way that you're used for agriculture is through livestock grazing. And the picture on rangelands right now is a little hard to say in Colorado, but we are coming out of several years of drought conditions as well as a a very dry couple of decades. So we are still in a bit of a wait and see moment at at this exact moment in terms of the upcoming growing season. Um, Things could really change in the next couple of months. That said, if we don't get any precipitation in the next two or so months, or if it's below average, we will be in a situation where we would expect uh, less than average forage production across the state. And that will be especially true in some regions. And I think that may end up being what comes to pass for irrigated agriculture as well. We are seeing across the board higher, you know, closer to average snowpacks than we have the past couple of years, in some cases even above average. I think the challenge is going to be, are we going to see an early runoff? You know, if we see an early runoff, that's potentially going to portend a difficult situation during the season. And also the 30-year average switch this year. So what is average now is lower than it was last year, if that makes sense. So uh, via a combination of factors, I think my best guess at Portension is that we're going to see slightly below average stream flows this year, and in some cases, potentially significantly below average stream flows. I would just add that the national... Oh, gosh, I forget the acronym right now, but NOAA, right. Um, NOAA puts together a drought outlook, which is a three-month product for all of the U.S. And so our outlook for Colorado right now, it combines temperature and moisture forecasts, and it's a three-month forecasting time span. And that predicts continued drought conditions almost everywhere in Colorado and throughout the western U.S. So it's a forecast. It's not necessarily going to happen, right? Because there's a lot of uncertainty, especially as we get into longer term forecasts throughout the spring. But if we look at that indicator, you know, we're not looking at super promising trends. However, 
it's not the full story. And again, forecasts lose resolution as you go into the future. So, but that is an additional piece of the puzzle. And we, I think we'll also learn a lot in the next, in the coming weeks, you know, the next coming weeks are historically a real high precipitation period in the, in the high country where a lot of our water is stored. And, you know, when things should be wet and they are dry, it has an outsized significance. So things should be wet. You know, we should be gaining inches of snow water equivalent in the, in the high country. And so it, you know, it will be interesting to see if that comes to pass and, and may, may have some significance on what, the, what happens this year. Harrison, how does that affect you as a person who, who's a farmer who runs an orchard? I mean, you have been having to deal with drought for a while now. Yeah, I mean, it depends on what angle you look at it from, I suppose. The, the first issue for us is the productivity and health of the, of the orchard. So, you know, orchards are perennial systems, you know, trees, particularly young trees, are impacted pretty significantly in drought situations. They don't have well-developed root systems and dry soils can can be pretty deleterious to to their long-term health and in some cases, short-term health. So, you know, it starts there. And then the next factor is the financial factor that results from that, whether we lose trees, whether we lose crop, it can make for very challenging financial circumstances in the year of. And then I think the more challenging piece is actually the long-term financial impacts of that. So if we lose trees that we are anticipating, you know, especially young trees, if we lose trees that we're anticipating harvesting in the next couple of years and we have to replant those and that time frame extends out, our whole business plan is is really thrown off. And and it costs it costs a lot of money to run one of these operations. So accumulating debt or accumulating financial hardship over a series of years for us is is really, really challenging. And so then probably the next factor that impacts us after that is the mental health piece, which is the just the stress of what it's like to be in a situation like this, what it's like to face the financial reality of, of a drought of the impact on the farm. And then spreading out from there is the multifarious consequences of poor mental health that can impact me and and our family and our business and everything from there. So because of the situation that you're in multiplied by tens of thousands of farmers all over the state, you are helping producers to make preparations, to make plans for drought preparedness. And each operation is going to have different needs, different goals. Give us some examples of what these kinds of planning processes are like, what people are looking for, how the planning process really helps them. So, Mary Charlotte, I think you nailed it when you said, you know, we're providing education and outreach on the planning process because every operation is different in the state of Colorado. Even operations that are doing the same type of agriculture are different and they have different opportunities and strengths and also goals. So that's why in our drought planning program, well, that is why we really promote drought planning rather than specific strategies. We provide strategies as potential options that people could use, but we're really focused on the planning process because it is adaptable to different operations. And so the components of the planning process are similar to any strategic planning process or management 
planning that you might do with an operation. They, you know, basically consists of goals, decision points, and strategies, and then learning um, so that you can continue to grow as an operation. And I guess the one thing that differentiates it in a drought context is that we are focused on drought. So a lot of what we do is focusing on, you know, what climate and weather information is significant for your operation. So you can use that information in a predictive sense to try to make decisions more proactively rather than retroactively. Um, we also talk about, you know, the the suite of strategies that you might employ, and we talk about those on a timeline. So when you're experiencing drought acutely, your suite of decisions may be different than when you're recovering from drought or when, you know, the situation we're in now, which is we're approaching drought, but we're not quite in it yet. So we also talk about drought planning as kind of a continuum with regards to where you are um, to drought. Um, and then there's a significant learning component from drought actions that we emphasize because we do know from research that producers who have experienced drought tend to have a broader range of information sources and a broader range of strategies to cope with the situation because they've had that past experience and hopefully learned from it. I can talk briefly a little bit about sort of how we view planning on our farm. Retto is, you know, Retto is pretty good at boiling a lot of it down to creating if-then statements for for a farm. So if at X time of year, the snowpack is this, then take this action. If at X time of year, the forecast is this, take this action. You know, So we have set up on our farm a series of steps that we know we need to take. Some of them are long-term, some of them are short-term, that involve really a, a wide variety of topics. It involves physical practices like employing landscape fabrics and mulches. It uses long-term practices, you know, focusing on better soil health, better water penetration. It involves water resource issues like finding additional water resources, either for loan or for purchase. And in some really dramatic situations, it might involve not planting or not counting on a harvest from a specific crop if we don't have water for it. So we have a series of then statements that we then pair to if statements. And it's not as precise as maybe it could be, but you know, we know, you know, I was watching every day throughout December as the snowpack was slowly rising. Similarly, throughout the last couple of months. And then as soon as I saw that we were beginning to have an early melt and that that might mean that we were going to have a, um, a short season, you know, I began taking steps to make some of these things actionable, make sure we have the inventory on hand, make sure I'm making connections with the water resources that I need to make that plan so that I'm not doing it in the moment, because that's the last thing that we need is to be scrambling in the moment to try to figure out how to get water to something that that otherwise might die. So it's given us a lot of peace of mind to be able to have a plan that we know of that is based on our experience, that is based on experience of others and helps us to move forward. There's a lot of other things, you know, securing long-term water resources is a huge piece. So, but that involves purchasing more resources and that's a long-term prospect that's not, not, not easily turned over in the, in the moment. So, you know, and I think as we've talked to other people, we've seen that when they initiate that drought planning practice, there's a lot of different outcomes. And it just, I think it goes back to how unique everyone's operation is. You know, one that really stands out in my mind, and, and I don't want to use this too much as a proxy for other people, but I think it was a real aha moment for me, was a family that when we worked with them sort of as discussion partners to figure out how they were going to adapt to drought, 
one of the big things that came up was that the couple that we were working with, which was the ascending generation, was having a really hard time talking about drought with the older generation and that that was one of the biggest barriers. So, you know, what we learned pretty early on when we started working on plans with people was that water resources were only a part of the element. There was a lot of other things that came down to drought planning that make it really more than just a drought planning exercise that really encourage you to, you know, take control of a lot of the other issues in your life and and build plans for them. Harrison, tell us a little bit more about the generational piece. I mean, there seems to be in some cases, a generational divide on even things like climate change or, you know, how people are seeing the big picture. Is that what you're talking about? Or or what does that look like? Certainly, there are instances where the person that is coming into the operation is thinking about what does this farm look like 30 years from now? You know, what does the conditions look like 30 years from now that will allow us to farm or create challenges or opportunities? You know, I think they've got a lot more of sort of a strengths, weaknesses, opportunities and threats mindset to not only the coming years, but to the next 20, 30, 40 years, whatever their career might be. And I think sometimes in the older generation, it's, you know, the concerns are... I think there's a lot of wisdom probably about what has and hasn't worked in the past, but then there's also, they don't have maybe that breadth of vision over the next couple decades that they're worried about or thinking about on such a regular basis. And in some cases, I do think the younger generation and some, sometimes, you know, we have a bit of an anxiety complex all on that fair and square, and that probably plays into it as well. So I don't want to, you know, I don't want to make any broad generalities. I highlighted that point less to say that I think this is a pervasive issue and more to say in some situations, the issue may not be water resources. In the particular situation I was referring to, they had lots of water resources. They were a a farm that had plenty of water now and, and foreseeably into the future, but they were still, because of other issues in the community, because of other ways that water was or was not going to be managed, they still felt like they needed to, to prepare themselves for long-term drought scenarios. And for that family in particular, they felt like the intergenerational communication was really was was one of the major barriers to that. Right. Retta, what are some of the different perspectives that you're coming across when you're helping people do drought planning? Well, one that comes to mind for me is that some people are very much almost well, a lot of people do already have drought plans. So I don't want to say that, you know, lots of people already have drought plans. Lots of people already have experience. And many people are pretty comfortable managing for drought and do a good job with it. And then there's other people who this is a newer concept to and and want more proactive guidance on how to create a drought plan. So I guess that's one big difference I see is that, you know, some people are like, oh, either actually they're genuinely not that impacted by drought, so it's not a primary concern, or they've already integrated it into how they manage, to fundamentally how they manage, so they really don't need a drought plan. Um, and then there's other folks who really wanted kind of the, the outreach and education that we're offering. So I think there's a, a broad spectrum there. And, you know, we've integrated that because one of the collaborators that I worked with when I first started doing this work, her name is Haley Wilmer, and she's a social scientist. And she'd spent a lot of time interviewing ranchers about how they plan for drought and reacted to drought and, and that kind of thing. And so one of the things that 
this whole program was really shaped around is that producers are experts in their own operations. I'm an outsider and as an outsider, I don't have direct control, obviously, and I have a much lower stake in the choices that people make. Those choices impact them. So I think we also have tried to integrate that into the philosophy of our program in that ranchers and producers are the decision makers. They're the ones who know what's best for them and they're the ones who have to make the decisions. So trying to be cognizant of how we're communicating. And along those lines, I guess one of the other things we've done is producers have been our presenters at our workshops. Um, and you know, in particular, we brought in some producers for our livestock and range webinar that we did who had just a really broad array of approaches to how they approach drought. One of the ranchers we worked with had a very prescriptive plan of, you know, what he observes throughout the year and then how he adjusts his livestock numbers based on that. And then other folks had different strategies that they used. So again, it's, we try to think of ourselves as working with the knowledge that people already have rather than, you know, telling folks things they should be doing. You're also doing trainings that target not just the producers themselves, but also some of the people around the producers, agronomists and input dealers and other people. What is what does that look like? Well, that came out of, you know, that came out of a couple of conversations. Um, one thing we were hearing from some producers was, we know there's different things we could be doing. We know there's new things we could be trying. And we don't feel like there's a real good ecosystem out there to help advise that process. And so, you know, to take a miniature tangent, another program that we're working on really hard at Farmers Union is a mental health program for farmers and ranchers and and farm workers. And one of the keys that we see to that is making sure that the folks you work with at USDA have basic mental health literacy, making sure that the people at the implement dealer have it. And so we sort of address drought in the same way, where if you have a crop advisor that every year is telling you to do the same status quo program, you know, either because that's what they know and that's what they realize, or because God forbid they're lazy or whatever, you know, that producers often aren't acting alone and that they can make different decisions if they have a more supportive network of people around them, particularly when it comes to drought. And, you know, I, as a producer, I can say the people who advise us in a lot of different capacities are wonderful, knowledgeable people. They don't think about some of these challenges in the same ways that I do. And, and I really have to push them to say, okay, what, what should I be doing? You know, should I be using a different input? Should I be using a different product in this situation? The demands of, somebody who's a salesperson fits somewhere between the product that they're trying to push and wanting to see their customers succeed. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that conversation doesn't involve drought. Sometimes that conversation involves selling X number of pounds of nitrogen, or sometimes it involves selling, you know, X product to deal with this issue. And that we felt like those people in particular could benefit from understanding a little bit more about drought and what producers go through in a drought situation right. and that that could help inform them as they do the work that they do with producers on a daily basis. I really love a lot of the people that work out there in the field. And if you spend your time in a truck selling phosphorus, you just have a different experience of the environment out there. You know, I called one of our crop advisors three times this morning as I was mixing our spray tank, you know, just checking, hey, this, that, the other. And they're an incredible resource for people. And our goal is not to undermine the people that are 
working with producers on a daily basis, the crop advisors, the insurance salespeople, the agency folks, our goal is to enhance the knowledge that they have access to so that as they work with producers, they can be th- more thoughtful about drought because it may not be one of the current demands that, they, that they're thinking of on a daily basis. I guess maybe to underscore, you know, it's almost access. It's creating access to drought information and drought planning resources. And that is one of the goals of our program is that wherever you are, whoever you know in your local area, you might know somebody. One of those people might have drought planning information. They might have a good understanding of weather and climate data and how that applies to drought planning. So that's kind of our goal is so that all those people in different parts of the state, whoever it is that somebody trusts, they can ask someone a question if they are interested in drought planning um, so that they can, if they want to, develop a drought plan. Right. Now, one of the things that is available is there are some drought incentives. Um, What does that look like? Well, actually, that's going to be, that's a program we're launching, and that won't start until June of this year in 2022, and it will be through Rocky Mountain Farmers Union. But basically, one of the things we found in our dry run of consulting one-on-one with producers on creating drought plans was that folks often needed access to private sector services, such as a water lawyer or maybe a state planner or engineer that you do have to pay money for and come at significant cost. And so we wrote a grant funded by the Colorado Water Conservation Board, or should I say Amber Weber of the Ditch and Reservoir Company Alliance originally was a big part of that grant through Rocky Mountain Farmers Union. And as part of that grant, we included funds for a stipend for a producer to pursue whatever private sector service they thought would help them in creating and implementing a drought plan. And then we have a $500 stipend for actually creating a drought plan for a producer who works with one of us or one or more of us and creates the drought plan. Both those amounts of money are are really small compared to the types of expenses we're talking about, I guess, depending on what they are. But the point of the program is to reduce barrier to action. So we hope that that financial incentive, even though it is small, really prompts someone to take action. On a drought plan. Now, I know you're not promoting any specific strategies or practices. You're not telling people what to do, but rather helping them. And and as you said, knowing that they are experts on their own operations. At the same time, I mean, do you see, for example, people moving toward regenerative agriculture practices, healthy soil practices? Do you give people information about things like that that will help them with better water retention and infiltration and those types of things? You know, I think a lot of the people we work with, whether they use words like regenerative or not, have a pretty good sense of the impacts of drought on soil and their and the way that they treat soil. I feel like one of the things that maybe we see a lot has to do with stocking numbers. You know, there was another person that we worked with who actually leased out most of their ground to somebody else. And they came to us saying, hey, we'd like help developing an understanding and a plan for how I communicate with the women that we lease to when it comes to stocking and timing of the lease right now so that we can decrease any damage that we might see to our pasture in a dry situation. And so, you know, my sense of things is that people are ever increasingly and in some cases have for a long time been pretty keyed into a lot of the things that they can do to improve the conditions of their soil and produce uh, and 
improve the the ability for soils to to retain water well. And I think particularly people who are thinking about farming for decades to come are thinking diligently about these issues. So it's not something we bring up a lot, but I do feel like people are bringing it up in their own conversations with us. Yeah. And I, I think, well, you know, the, one of the one of the reasons I am involved with drought in the first place is because one of the best soil health management practices you can do is to manage well in a drought and to, you know, to make sure that your demand for forage doesn't exceed your supply of forage. And of course, in a drought on rangeland, your supply of forage is going to go down. So that's one of the, the main reasons. So yeah, I agree with Harrison that kind of practices that are regenerative, even if people don't use that word, flow through the rationale behind the program. And if somebody has a question about a specific practice or they're thinking about it anyway, you know, I wouldn't, like one one thing, you know, some producers I know are interested in Z-dike structures, which are kind of those beaver analogs to enhance water retention on landscapes in Western Colorado and, and brought more broadly than Western Colorado. So if people are interested in that sort of stuff, definitely we provide more information. One thing that comes to mind too is when we had our workshop a couple of weeks ago in Grand Junction, it was the in-person part of our series. And at the end of the workshop, we you know asked people for feedback, and then some of the feedback was, "We want I want more information on water efficiency," and so I brought that up to the group. But then we got the feedback from another producer saying, "You know, if you talk about water efficiency, I also want you to make sure to balance that with other." Well, flood irrigation in his case, because in his case, flood irrigation works for his operation in a particular way. So he just wanted to emphasize to us that as we move forward with this program, that we provide balanced perspectives, because again, not not any one strategy works for every single producer. So that's important to keep in mind for us. So how do people find you? How do you reach out to them? If somebody's listening now and wants to learn more, what can they do? Well, I think there's a couple things. It depends on how you want to participate. If you're if you're a producer and you want to join with a group of folks that are thinking critically about drought, that can sit down with you in a one-on-one capacity or a group small group capacity and talk about what your options are for drought and what you want to and help develop that drought plan. Uh, folks can go to our website. Uh, Retta, quick, what's the website? It's drought.extension.coloradostate.edu. And then if folks are out there that are that are working as service providers and they want to join our group as we think about how to increase outreach to producers, as they think of, as we think about how to reach producers in order to offer them the financial incentives in order to work with them in a drought planning capacity, you know, folks are more than welcome to join our regular meetings. Get in touch with Red or I, and we would happily in- include you in the group. It's it's a collaborative project. It's highly porous in terms of who can participate. So really anyone who's interested in having a voice in in how we do the work that we're doing is welcome to the table. So that's a great way for folks to get involved. Yeah. So we're on social media. We have Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn, and it's at Drought Advisors. And then you can email us at droughtadvisors at colostate.edu or droughtadvisors at gmail.com. And then, yeah, social media is probably the best way to stay in touch with our most current work. Excellent. Anything else that either one of you wants to let people know before we go? 
I, I just want to mention that a lot of the work we're doing in the drought planning framework comes from work that was done by other people in the past, and specifically the University of Arizona has a wonderful drought planning guide that was written by Kelsey Hawks and Mitch McLaren, and then we draw a lot on the University of Nebraska um, at Lincoln research and products that they've developed, and I believe their website is managing drought risk on the ranch. So they have a great planning guide and a bunch of resources. They're connected with the Drought Mitigation Center. And then UC Davis also has a product they developed that's a drought planning guide for livestock operations. So the work that we're doing here in Colorado really draws upon that other work. Oh, I just wanted to shout out to all the producers that are getting geared up this year. Anyone who's listening to this that's out on the ground, on the tractor, in the soil, hey, Let's do it, guys. We got this. Excellent. Harrison Topp and Retta Brueger, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Thank you so much. You've been listening to the NM Cool podcast. If you want to learn more about the New Mexico Coalition to Enhance Working Lands, visit nmcool.org. That's n-m-c-e-w-l.org, where you can listen to other episodes of this podcast and learn more about our members' work and ways you can get involved.